Still digging through the rubble of the explosion in upstate New York that appears to have killed the entire population of a small town, whose bodies have been transformed into monsters. The epicenter of the event is the house of a woman known only as Aunt Sarah. If anyone has more information, they are urged to contact authorities. In Washington DC, the cause of the recent partial collapse of the Capitol building's dome remains unknown. Senators Ernest Meavitt and H. Warren Craddock have arranged for Tony Stark's bodyguard Iron Man to be taken into custody on suspicion of having damaged the dome as part of an anarchist plot. And, in lighter news, the South American despot known as El Presidente has abdicated his leadership role, in the aftermath of a rampage by Duroc the demolisher that he mistook for a citizen's uprising. That old trick again. This is Doombot JC18 for the VOL. Zero. Two. Six. This is, the voice of Latveria. Zero. Two. Six. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good, or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Doombot JP37. We have a really special episode this week. Got something a little different. We have two different guests this week to discuss the Doctor Doom story in Astonishing Tales number eight, which really changed the course of the greater Doom story as we know it. And our first guest this week is the man who wrote that story, Jerry Conway. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Can you tell us a little bit about the background behind uh, this particular story? Well, uh, I'm trying to think what the inspiration was. Obviously, it goes back to the uh, original Doom story uh, in uh, Fantastic Four Annual, where we learned that uh, he came from a family of witchcraft and, uh, and the like. And as a... I guess as a, as a youngster at that time, you know, uh, growing up uh, with Catholic mythology around me, uh, it struck me, you know, very much so that uh, Doom was, you know, kind of a, a, a sad figure, you know, in this sense, you know, and had the potential for, in his own way, heroism, that uh, he was, in effect, trying to redeem his mother from hell. You know, yeah. and and uh, you know, there, there in Catholic in Catholicism, there's all this stuff about uh, purgatory and uh, uh, dispensations and indulgences, and all these these uh, ways in which uh, the uh, living can somehow intercede on the part of uh, the dead. Right. Uh, and in, in effect, you know, lessen their torments, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of bizarre, you know, but, <laughs> but it was part of my, my, my Catholic background. Uh, and at that time when I was writing, uh, for Marvel at the very early uh, stages, I was still in the mindset of the kind of storytelling that I had been doing for DC in their horror magazines, you know, oh. or their, their mystery magazines. Right. So this, this sort of combined 
those two two influences plus the superhero influence of the the Marvel storyline. Now you were you quite young when you wrote this. Uh, you must have been like nineteen, something like that. Uh, I was eighteen. I think uh, wow. yeah, I was I was eighteen, and I, it was actually. I, I was saying to my uh, wife uh, yesterday, as we were, you know, I was telling her about our, our conversation coming up today. Uh, this was a story that I wrote shortly after I had moved out on my own at, at 18 wow. and was feeling very, uh, very fragile and uh, uncertain about, uh, you know, my uh, ability to support myself, you know, and, and to have a, uh, an independent life. And Roy Thomas, uh, who was my editor at uh, Marvel, or you know, the assistant editor, understand, but was the, the guy I was directly talking with, had given me at that point. I was doing two regular titles a month for Marvel, uh, I believe, uh, and we talked about you know I, uh, that I was going to need more work, and he started you know giving me uh, additional work and. And this was one of the first stories that he gave me. And I remember writing it while I was uh, staying in a, in a hotel preparatory to moving in uh, with some roommates, you know, for the first time. So I was really, really anxious. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not sure whether I was going to be able to have a career, uh, make a living, uh, you know, do all of this stuff. And I think some of that, you know, played into the emotional undertones of the story because, you know, it's about this, this guy who's trying to appear stronger than he actually is, you know, and, and defiant, you know, uh, in the face of, uh, you know, an overwhelming force that he cannot ever really combat, you know, so there, there, that, that feeling of fragility is sort of underlying that a bit. And it's an amazing feeling for, of all things, a Dr. Doom story. We're, we're not yeah. used to seeing, his vulnerable side. No, no. But I mean, I think his vulnerable side is what, what makes him or had for many years, you know, made him such a, a rich character, Yeah. you know, after his first appearance in FF number five, um, he slowly developed, you know, over time. I mean, in that first appearance, he's pretty much a, a stock bad guy. Yeah. Um, but, in uh, you know Fantastic Four annual, I guess it was number one, uh, number two, as, as yeah, number two, yeah. I guess as we learn, you know, as we were learning more about his past and and his history with uh, Reed Richards, you know, and the uh, torment, you know, of of, of uh, his life, uh, it's kind of cool. Uh, I, I remember being told once, and I'm not really sure whether it was apocryphal or not, but that Stan and Jack had a fundamental disagreement about what was under doom's mask huh. uh, that Stan, you know, being fairly literal saw it as, you know, that, that doom, that doom was, you know, horribly scarred, um, you know, and was uh, uh, basically, you know, a monster under the mask. And Jack, on the other hand, apparently thought it would be cool if all doom had was a tiny little scar, right? But it had, you know that scar represented the uh, the damage. You know that, that uh, his failure uh, to achieve the greatness that that he assumed it was going to be always his. You know was was what made him hide himself from the world. You know it was a, a a psychological scar more than anything else. 
right? And I think uh, John Byrne ended up kind of splitting the difference there, saying like, well, yeah. it was a tiny little scar and then he burned his face off with the mask. Right, right. Which I, I you know, sure. Yeah. I, I prefer, I prefer, uh, I prefer Jar, uh, Jack's notion, which yeah. he then went on and, and played with a bit, you know, with Orion uh, yeah. in uh, New Gods. Right. So uh, it's 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 all very interesting, you know. And I think there's a potential for, or at least at that stage when I was working on that those stories, there was a a, a rich uh, un tapped mine of uh, world building for Dr. Doom. Oh yeah. That uh, we were, were uh, able to do. Now you actually wrote a, kind of a string of Dr. Doom stories. Like after that one, I think there was a Submariner story. And then a little bit later, there was the Fantastic Four story with Darkoth and uh, then, then the Avengers sequence. Um, do, you, do you remember anything about the circumstances around any of those? Or if, if you were trying um, to kind of build a through line there? Well, I, I don't think I ever, you know, until until I was well into my uh, late twenties, early thirties, had any notion of what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mostly I was winging it, you know, during those days and trying to, you know, trying to write stories that that appeal to me as a reader, uh, but with not a lot of forethought. You know, I didn't have a lot of personal life experience to draw on, and. Uh, you know, my 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 theory of, of comic book writing uh, was fairly primitive, and uh, how can I say it? Uh, more more inspirational. You know, it's a, it, it came more intuitively to me right. than uh, than through any structured uh, development. So I didn't have any plans. You know, uh, long term plans. I just like to write certain characters, and if I had the opportunity, I would find a way to put them in. I'm curious where you where you first encountered Doom as a reader. Like, how how early did you jump on the? Fantastic oh, uh, issue number five. I mean, wow. I, I, I started reading Fantastic Four with issue number four, and um, actually went back to the newsstand to see if they had any more, and they had a, a copy of issue three. So <laughs> I, I got issue three, That's and then great. waited, you know, anxiously for the next issue. Got it, read it, uh, right it right off the newsstand. So uh, yeah, I, I I followed him from uh, scratch. That's that's amazing. Uh, yeah, you besides uh, you, I don't think anybody except uh, Stan and Roy had written Doom at all up to that up to that point. I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I don't know if uh, if uh, Gary Friedrich might have uh, would he have written him at some point in. Uh, like one of the, one of the Iron Man or X Men, I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, were, I mean, the truth is there weren't very many writers <laughs> working there. So I guess not, Larry Lieber wrote a couple too. Yeah. yeah, Larry Larry would certainly have written them. Um, and and again, there wasn't a lot of development for these characters psychologically. Right. You know that 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 really didn't start to come in until the seventies. Right. Uh, you know, St Stan. In all fairness, I mean, he he raised the bar for what you could conceive to do with a character, but he never actually did very much, you know, beyond, you know, uh, some lip service to some of this development. Right. Uh, but there was so much material that was in, that was implied right. and, and inherent in the, the, the materials in the world building of it, that you could come to it uh, as a writer with maybe more, uh, 
uh, emotional ambition, you know, if, if not creative ambition, you know, uh, and, and dig down into these characters in ways that uh, you really couldn't at, at DC characters with the exception, say, of, of Batman. Right. Um, you know, none of them, none of them had an inherent uh, psychological depth, you know, the, the way that there was inherent depth to these characters at Marvel. Yeah, there's very interesting thing I noticed when I was looking at that FF annual with Doom's backstory. We never actually see his mother. Uh, Jack mm. never drew never drew his mother. Like she's she's entirely mentioned in dialogue, but that's yeah. really it. Yeah. And I, I wonder too whether that meant that uh, she was an invention of Stan's, because yeah. you know there is no you know sometimes uh, the, the thing about Jack. Jack used to throw out a lot of ideas and uh, he was more interested in the visuals than in storytelling as such, you know, Um, which is, I mean, you see that progression from the early days uh, where he was, uh, you know, did focus on storytelling and uh, connecting uh, scenes, you know, and, and building to a climax. And then the work that he started doing once he was basically handed over the, the plotting of the books, it becomes very disjointed and, uh, you know, things sort of happen and then are dropped, you right. know, and, and <laughs> there's no connective storytelling. And, and he just tends to tie stories up in like three panels at the end of an issue. Right. So, you know, in the early stories, you had more story structure because I think Stan was more involved in the storytelling. Uh, and then as, you know, Jack took it over, you had less of that. But there's this intermediate phase yeah. where Stan is still involved in the storytelling, but is allowing Jack, you know, more leeway to tell the story right. where Stan then comes in and, you know, reworks things a little bit or adds an extra uh, piece of, of dialogue or, or uh, subplot, you know, that, that, that is basically attached to the art rather than integral to the art. Right. Uh, and that, that I think was particularly the case with some of these backstory stories because Jack really didn't care, you know, <laughs> you know about, about backstory that much, except for his own, you know, his own uh, material when he, when he was doing new gods there, right. he had a backstory, but again, it wasn't like developed from an emotional point of view. It was more like this epic visual backstory. Right. Now this story, uh, was this the first time you'd worked with Gene Cullen? I believe it. I, I, I'm not sure whether I was doing Daredevil yet by that point. And I'm not even sure how I wrote this, whether I wrote it as a, a script in advance or uh, dialogue Marvel style, you know, rereading it, it looks to me like it might've been script in advance huh. because it's uh, the, the pacing is much more balanced than you would get with a uh, w- working with Gene uh, in Marvel style. I, I, the first story I ever, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure that this was not the first time I worked with Gene because the first story I ever did with Gene was a Daredevil story. Uh, and I gave him a two page plot and God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> he basically drew 15 pages out of the first half page of 
of power uh, of, of the first two pages <laughs> and then squeezed everything in to the last four pages of the art uh, that was on the remaining page and a half of plot. And uh, I think the last two pages have got like something like 16 panels. Wow. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Uh, and I learned my lesson after that with, with Gene where I would, I would uh, give him fairly clear directions. Okay, this next sequence is gonna take four pages. This right. next sequence <laughs> is gonna take three pages. So for this, this looked very balanced story-wise. So I have a feeling that it uh, it was written as a first uh, 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 as a script first. Huh. Interesting. Uh, at the end, there's there's kind of a next issue thing. You know, next Doom's Mask, and <laughs> there were no more Doom stories in Astonishing Tales. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a title something like that that shows up in one of your Submariner stories, but. Do you know if there were, there were plans for? I had nothing, that... you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, uh, I I think it was Doom Mask, you know, uh, uh, was a way to, I mean, it, it sounds cool. I don't know what, <laughs> right. it, what it means. Uh, I would have come up with something. Right? One of my, my uh, uh, early fumbling techniques at uh, soap opera storytelling was to throw out random seeds that I hoped would blossom. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and sometimes they did. And sometimes, you know, they withered on the vine. Uh, I, I probably would have come up with something, you know, based on, uh, off of that. Right. Um, but I didn't, I don't think I had anything particularly in mind okay. uh, at the time. Like I said, I was in a fragile, right. uh, anxious state writing that story. Yeah, I can, I, I can imagine that. The really interesting thing about that story is how much it has paid off over time, how much has been built on top of it. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I think it was actually Don Glut who decided like, you know, the devil that he's fighting there is not just a devil, it's Mephisto. And that showed up in a what if story sometime around 1978. And some years later, Roger Stern did that story where this the, the plot thread that you started here comes to an end. He mm -hmm. does actually rescue his mother's soul. And well, I'm, that, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I read that story, but I'm glad to, glad to hear it. It's a great story, actually. It's, yeah. uh, it, there, there is well, a Roger real, is a good writer. I mean, you know, yeah. he, there, he did, did great work. Yeah, there, there's a real emotional payoff to it. There are so many seeds planted in this story that, other people got to make grow and that you got to make grow. And in a very similar way to how there are so many seeds planted in the earlier Doom stories that maybe Stan or Jack or both didn't think were there, but that you saw and that you made bloom in this one. I mean, I think that's what, what every writer tries to do who follows on to a, uh, to a pre-existing character is you, you look, you look to see what, what seeds or what roots, you know, are available that haven't been, uh, haven't been developed. And there's a satisfaction in doing that because in, in a way you're fulfilling your own fan fiction, you know, you're, you're creating <laughs> your own uh, version of, of, of the, the, the character as you want to see it. And I think, you know, it, it, this, this version of Doom fits perfectly uh, comfortably within the version that Stan was writing. Uh, you know, because he's still, you know, pompous and still aloof, you know, but now we see that some of that is uh, a defense mechanism, 
you know, that it's, that it's more than just, you know, arrogance, that in a certain way, it's, it's how he keeps himself strong for this unending fight, you know, that uh, he's pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. Can you recall any of the things in those earlier stories that you'd read that really struck you about Doom? Like what, what was interesting about him? Well, I, I, I keep coming back to that origin story uh, yeah. with him, where uh, we learn so much about him and and about what Ledbaria was like. You know, as as uh, you know, this uh, Stan and Jack's classic middle middle Europa nineteen uh, thirties right. uh, uh, Frankenstein uh, version of, <laughs> of Eastern Europe. Uh, which has so little to do with, you know, anything that, that actually existed right. in the 60s or the 50s or the 40s. <laughs> you know? uh, it, it's, it, in a way, it's the kind of Baroque uh, version of, of Eastern Europe that uh, Mel Brooks parodied in <laughs> uh, uh, Young Frankenstein. Right. Uh, but I, 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 it spoke to me, you know, because it's, because my own ignorance about this sort of stuff was uh, pretty profound, you know, at 18, you know, and certainly earlier, you know, as, as a reader, you know, uh, 10 or 11 or 12, you know, when I first encountered the Fantastic Four, what I was drawing on was similar to what, uh, you know, my, my imagination was also being formed by those 1930s and 40s universal horror films right. uh i mean i keep telling you know i sometimes i say that to, to talk to my wife you know the weirdest thing about growing up as a child in the 1950s is that your formative movies and music and uh uh animation all of the stuff that you were fed as a kid from you know one to ten or twelve was old movies from the 30s and old cartoons from the forties. Wow. So I grew up uh, with, you know, the, all the universal horror store uh, monsters, which were from the forties. Yeah. Not from the night. I didn't see any 1950s movies until uh, I think uh, seventh voyage of Sinbad in 1959. That was the first modern movie that I had, that I'd ever seen. Huh. Uh, you know, and then from the late fifties, you know, through the sixties, I started, catching up on what was going on because all I would see was the movies that were playing in the afternoon on my local TV, right. uh, which were old movies. So I, I, I had uh, the childhood that my mother and father had huh. <laughs> <laughs> the same childhood. <laughs> we, we watched the same movies growing up, you know, the right. same animation, the same, you know, I, I could, I, as somebody who watched the Bugs Bunny and, and uh, cartoons in the 19, uh, you know, in, in, on 1950s TV, right. I was inundated with the music of 1920s and 1930s <laughs> that they were reusing in their cartoons. Yeah. So I knew all these songs, you know, from uh, from the early turn of the century. <laughs> it's just weird. You know, so my, my childhood is a weird mixture of 1950s and 1930s. Uh, pop culture, and that was that was why when I read the uh, the Doctor Doom origin story, which drew heavily on the the uh, mythology, uh, the, the the fake Middle European mythology of <laughs> the 
1930s and 40s universal horror movies, it seemed perfectly natural to me. Right. <laughs> That's what I was expecting, you know? That's anyway, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just... So I grew up with that material and that was what I was trying to, to, to recapitulate, you know, in my own, my own story. And as long as I've got you, any uh, memories around the other times that, that, that you've written Doom, the, the, uh, the Submariner and the FF and Avengers stories? Well, I remember you, the, there were some that I did, I think, with uh, Rich Buckler yeah. uh, when we were on Fantastic Four. And I, I, liked, uh, I, I liked Rich's take on, uh, on Doom because he, Rich, Rich was quite willing to, to uh, be influenced heavily by uh, previous artists' work. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so in effect working with rich was like working with jack kirby on, <laughs> on uh dr doom but with also you know interesting sometimes interesting uh neil adams-esque touches you know that right. that that uh added an extra emotional depth to the character so that was fun um and uh certainly when i was working on on submariner i think george tusca was the artist on those or um, I, think, sure. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So George, George had another, you know, interesting approach to, to doom, um, you know, just making him very solid and, and almost mechanical, right. uh, doom's an odd character because he's so ludicrous, you know, as a, as a, as a villain, you know, he's, he could only have been created in the early sixties, right. uh, because as you got further along in the sixties, things became more streamlined and more, practical you know but this this guy in an armored you know wearing a suit of armor and uh you know a, a, a green cloak and uh hood you could not create a character that looked like that today and that's part of <laughs> part of the reason why it's kind of a, a hard character to do in today's comics right you know because it, it's just it's too much <laughs> 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 but it's great it's still it's still fabulously great and i and i hope he continues to be an iconic figure you know in the marvel universe uh and i i can't wait to see uh, if and when they ever bring him into the mcu how they how they manage to do it in a way that uh grounds him you know but at the same time retains his marvelous implausibility jerry conway thank you so much for coming to talk about this story and as if that weren't enough, we actually have a second guest this week. Longtime friend of mine, the writer, editor, and professional semiotics analyst Joshua Glenn, the co-founder of Hilobrow, a website to which I contribute occasionally. Josh Glenn, welcome. Hi. Thank uh, you for having me. Thank you for and thank you for coming by, uh, the, the voice of life area. You have a story about how you came by this. I discovered comics at my father's um, second marriage, his okay. wedding ceremony in, in Harvard Square, Massachusetts. I was about 10 years old, nine or 10 years old. I mean, I had random comics that I picked up from flea markets and thrift stores, but I lived in a neighborhood that didn't really have a comic shop or the drugstores didn't even really sell comics, but um, in Boston here. But I, I kind of escaped from my father's wedding with some older cousins and walked into Harvard Square and discovered Millionaire Picnic. Uh, the amazing, you know, comic book shop in Harbor Square. I'm sure you know it very well. Oh yeah, I love it. And I just started um, collecting comics that day. And so probably somewhere in the next year or two, I discovered these astonishing tales um, collections. So um, so it snapping them up. 
So I, I don't have a complete collection or anything, but this was an important one to me. So Astonishing Tales uh, was one of the last of Marvel's split comics. There were you know, two features in every issue. And at this point, uh, for this issue only, there were three features. There was a third story that was just kind of a pilot episode of a thing uh, by the, about the Brothers Link that went absolutely nowhere. So there was the Kazar story, and there's a Doctor Doom story, and there's that Brothers Link story. But uh, uh, tell me a little about why, why this was a special one for you. Well, when you mentioned Dr. Doom to me, of course, Dr. Doom is such an iconic character, and I've read lots of Dr. Doom comics, lots of Fantastic Four comics. But um, this one immediately sprung to mind because it was it was this kind of glimpse behind the scenes. There's no superheroes in this one. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, um, there's no, Dr. Doom isn't out to, you know, he doesn't have a plan where he's going out to capture, capture the world or, you know, control anything or foil it. Fantastic Four or capture Sue Stone and make her marry him or whatever he's trying to do. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's just Dr. Doom uh, in a very, very personal, um, you know, moment, very kind of moment of weakness and um, emotion, really, that you just don't see normally. Yeah. Uh, his, his other ca- characteristics are on display. He, he is grandiose. He's arrogant. He's wily. He's, you know, powerful. He's using his, his tricks and so forth. But it's not for the usual reasons. This particular story is a real turning point for Doom. It was also the last episode of Doctor Doom that ran the Astonishing Tales. Like it would be a long, long time until Doom would have his own series again. But uh, what's special about it is that we find out at last one of the things that drives him and what he wants all that power he has been amassing for. The relation of Doom to his Latvian subjects has always been a real tricky one, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, are they his prisoners? There's a, there's some stories in which it's suggested that they're not allowed to leave Latveria. It's kind of a Kim Jong Un sort of situation where, right. for their own good, they have to stay in Latveria, and and of course they're like patrolled by the Doom bots and you know secret police and so forth. On the other hand, sometimes it seems like they love him and they worship him and they you know they they are grateful to him. He's made their 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 kind of backward country very prosperous and safe and so forth. You know, it's kind of trade-off of security for liberty kind of situation. In this particular page, it's a little bit Dr. Frankenstein-ish. They're looking up at this castle with the lightning hitting it. And there's, and one guy is saying, Von Doom goes too far. He tampers with things beyond the ken of men. He shall go the way of his mother. Just wait and see. So it's not just, sometimes you'll you'll see his peasants sort of unconditionally worshiping him. But here there's a little bit of sense like, Maybe this is the Frankenstein figure who they need to go with pitchforks and stop him from doing this stuff. Now, the interesting thing is Doom is calling up a devil figure. He says, you know, Beelzebub, Satan, whatever thy name may be. In this story, the figure he's trying to call up is not named for certain. It is later established it's Mephisto. Right. It is definitely Mephisto, who is mm-hmm. one of many sort of devil analogs within the Marvel Universe. But here it's just, he's he's calling up the devil from this bubbling cauldron, and like, it looks like a giant pot. It looks like an iron, like, like ironclad bathtub. It looks like a whirlpool. Just everything's swirling around, and you can't really tell what's what's going on. 
Yeah. Um, this is another thing that's so cool about Doom to me, especially when I was a kid, is that uh, on the one hand, he just sort of seems like an evil version of Iron Man. He's a guy, with a, he's an amazing genius inventor who has this really cool armor that shoots lightning, shoots bolts and so forth. But you realize here in particular that, you know, his, yes, his father was a doctor and a sort of a man of science, although I think he was really kind of an herbalist, but let's yes. just say he sort of represented kind of the enlightenment and, and the, the path that Doom would take in becoming a scientist. But his mother, whose chest of spells and so forth, he discovered at some point was a witch. Yeah. And so he's also a witch. He's a mage. And uh, here you see him not using technology, but, you know, doing a, some kind of incantation. Yeah. Uh, the very first time we ever see him in Fantastic Four number five, he's got books next to him that say science and sorcery. Oh, wow. wow. That's, that's the dichotomy that he treads. Like everything is there from the beginning. So we go on to a very swirly, abstract looking kind of page where really the only thing that resolves these lines into figures is the coloring. And mm -hmm. it's it's otherwise just very sort of abstract shapes that, you know, of his armor and his cape and the cauldron and the face of Mephisto. Yeah, sort of multiple faces. It's a little bit like the, um, the famous scene in the Bhagavad Gita where uh, Krishna reveals himself to Arjuna and it's kind of too much for Arjuna to handle because it's just this kind of, he's like, you really want to see what I, what I actually look like, Arjuna? And Arjuna says, yes, please, that's my greatest wish. And it's this horrible mass of mouths, eating mouths and eyes. And it's, it can't be comprehended by the human mind. It's too, too complex. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. This Satan or Beelzebub or whatever it is, is not is legion, as they say in the Bible. It's a kind of multiple figures who kind of coalesce on the next page into a single figure. And, finally, yeah, and then there's a really sad ending where he he stops by a plaque, I think, somewhere uh, with his mother's name on it, Cynthia Von Doom. Not not a very Romani name, Cynthia. But, <laughs> yeah. And he says, I tried, mother. I'm sorry. Perhaps next year when I'm stronger. Perhaps next year when I'm fresh. Which is very much that kind of that Jack London story about the fighter who, if only had a bit of stake, he could have won his, the old prize fighter could have won his fight, you know. If he just had that one, if he just had a bit of stake before the fight, this is kind of oh Henry is one of those kind of classic stories, you know. Uh, you know the tough guy who sort of even in his defeat he's sort of giving himself a little bit of a pep talk, a little internal monologue pep talk. Uh, it wasn't my fault that I lost, and I will uh, I'll be I'll, I'll be I'll do it next time. I'll get it next time. Yeah. Um, I love this Latvian story because I like I'm a big sucker for. Um, um, Ruritanian romances, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Explain for the benefit by, of our, our <laughs> listeners. Oh. Popularized by Anthony Hope's um, 1894 novel, The Prisoner of Zenda. Um, but, you know, it existed before that. But this idea that a modern person coming from, you know, the contemporary world with automobiles and democracy and, you know, penicillin and so forth could stumble into this Eastern European kingdom where, there was still royalty and there was still this kind of um, semi-medieval atmosphere of chivalry and honor. And, you know, even, so even, so even a villain like doom is kind of bound by his honor in this kind of world. And there's a little bit of a conservative wish fulfillment feeling there that like, yes, we've gained all these wonderful things thanks to liberal democracy and capitalism and, and science and technology, but we've lost these, this kind of wonderful, uh, you know, reliance on the code of honor and so forth that, you can gain momentarily by going back 
um, into one of these Eastern European countries. And even as, as I'm saying it now, I realize that that actually comes from Sir Walter Scott okay. and the idea that the modern Englishman can cross the border into Scotland and discover the, you know, the clans and the, you know, the kind of the chivalry and the old ways are still alive just right over the border in Scotland. So that right from the beginning, and he's Scott's kind of the inventor of the modern adventure tale. So really right from the beginning of modern adventure, that's kind of a big fantasy there that the modern man can just slip across a border into this world where, you know, there's still princesses to be rescued and, and rightful monarchs to put back on the throne and, you know, this kind of romance. Story. And demonic entities who can be called up from a cauldron in the basement of a castle. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Are you going to talk in your series about Victor Von Doom vis-a-vis Darth Vader? Uh, I would love it if you would. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I know it's never, there's no smoking gun that proves that, you know, um, George Lucas has kind of copied or modeled Darth Vader on Von Doom, although they are both armor clad wearing, you know, wizards with scarred faces. Um, it seems kind of clear to me uh, what, what was happening there, even though, you know, Lucas was basing armor and, you know, samurai armor or whatever. He had, he had some other different, uh, you know, visual references. But I find them both kind of, even when I fought, saw the first hour movie as a kid, I, even before we knew that Darth Vader was Luke's father, spoiler alert, and that, you know, and that he used to be a, a wounded young boy named Anakin, I found him sympathetic even in that first movie because I think looking back on it, I think it's because his, what he was trying to accomplish was orthogonal to what the empire was trying to accomplish. The empire wanted to just, you know, spread homogeneity and these kind of clones wearing the same armor spread out around the galaxy, eliminate all the funny looking aliens and, you know, make everything the same everywhere. And that was never Darth Vader's plan. He was kind of helping that happen, but he was, his ultimate loyalty was to the dark side. So he was this kind of wizard who had this other ulterior loyalty that's almost not even conceivable in that, especially in that first movie. Um, so I don't know, I found that, I don't like, my grand Marf Tracker is a classic kind of villain. He's like a Nazi, he's a bad guy, he's a military leader, he's unsympathetic, he blows up the planet. You get it, he tortures people, I get it, he's, he's the villain. But Vader was this kind of odd character who I, I yearned to know more about and I wanted to know what the dark side was all about and because like, it, was, it was not what the rest of the bad guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, and Doom's history is being parceled out little by little. Every story building on what's come before it, every writer coming on, building on what's come before them. And there's a sense of it all coming together and slowly being revealed over time. And what's really happening is every story, like every writer is just making stuff up that happens to fit with what's before it. And it just keeps resonating over and over. Right, yeah, he's kind of this perfect... Um... Taylor's dummy that whatever you put on him looks good. Yeah. yeah he's, he's an amazing character. And the, you know, the fact that you can't see his face, which was, which was also so um, effective in that first Star Wars movie, when you see yeah. the back of Vader's head and the helmet getting dropped on his head or whatever, yeah. um, it's just so compelling. You just want to see beyond what, what's under there. Joshua Glenn, thank you so much. And thanks again to the remarkable Jerry Conway for joining us as well. This episode marks half a year of this podcast, and we're going to be celebrating by taking a break next week. But we'll be back in two weeks' time to discuss another Doctor Doom story that's a landmark of a different kind. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, 
you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel Nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour, of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom, commands you to order it. Zero. Two. Six. This is, the voice of Latveria. Zero. Two. Six. Tomorrow, on Monsters on the Prowl, the truth behind the East River subway tunnel collapse. The recent near-catastrophe in New York City's subways was blamed on, quote, weak supports. But the voice of Litveria's investigation into it has discovered something much more sinister. The collapse took place in a partly constructed subway tunnel that had been abandoned less than a week before, and immediately followed an unexpected earthquake in Manhattan. And the American journalist who reported on it, Dave Arnstead, may have been covering up the cold-blooded murder of a gigantic and unique subterranean creature, Drag, he who stalks the subway. We'll have all the shocking details tomorrow on Monsters on the Prowl, here on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die.